Tonight's reading is taken from Malachi chapter 1, a prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated, and I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. This is God's word. Evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Matt Fuller, if we've not met. Uh, my task this evening is actually very straightforward. It's a very simple one. Um, from the text of Malachi 1, verses 1 to 5. Just five verses. If you've been here in the uh, last few chapters of um, 1 Samuel, that may be a note of pleasure to you. Five verses. But uh, it's a simple task. You need to know... If you're a Christian believer in this sense in particular, you need to know God loves you. That's it. And failure to know that, well, it's very hard to live the Christian life, unless you're really clear. So let's pray, and uh, we'll look at this together. Our great God and Father, 
Uh, We've sung wonderful truths already. Why should I gain from Christ's reward? I can't give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have become my ransom. Why would you choose to set your love upon us, Lord? Well, we'll find out more in eternity. But this evening, would we find out more or be reminded, refreshed in our knowledge that you have set your love upon us? Now, that is wonderfully liberating encouraging, and we need to know it in order to live for you and serve you. Father, refresh our hearts with that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's the sort of cry that goes up when things go wrong. Does God care? Or do you love me, God? So I think just even, you know, in A fairly unremarkable week, I guess, in church this week, but a family desperately on their knees, uh, children with um, severe learning difficulties, desperate for some help, particularly uh, resources in education um, from the local council. Nothing. Oh, and they're just hanging out for that. And you think, oh, Lord, not really. We just needed some help, Lord. Or the young woman in her 20s, out of left field, a large, presumed cancerous growth. Whoa, major surgery this week. And of course, amidst godliness, the question bubbles up, well, why, why me? Why does that happen to me? It may happen in slightly milder ways for you. Financially, you could be up against it. Then illness comes on top. And you think, seriously? That now? Or setback, adversity, you lose your accommodation, job goes, and you think, Lord, do you not care? Or maybe if you're a little bit older, it's just the slow attrition of disappointment. Nothing major. Actually, you shouldn't grumble, probably but just disappointment. Things not quite going as you thought. Life not working out as you'd expected. And the attrition of disappointment gets you down and you think, I look at others and life is good and I look at me and I think, where's your love for me, Lord? Well, that is the cry of our passage today in uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 of Malachi. As Ben said, five weeks, I think, in the book of Malachi from now until the end of August. The last book in the Old Testament, let's orientate ourselves a little bit of where we're at. So one of the prophets, you get the big hitters, the Isaiahs, Jeremiahs, Ezekiel, then the 12 minor prophets. I'm so sorry they get that name. And no doubt in heaven you'll say, I'm so sorry. You're quite impressive. It's so lovely to meet you. We called a minor. I just think it's very unfair. Anyway, they're just slightly short of minor prophets. The big hitters then, they're in the, um, the 8th century, the Isaiah prophesying to the uh, the south, um, people like Hosea, uh, Amos in the north. That's the and most of the eighth century. If you read those sort of prophets, it's you're you're following idols, you're following other gods. Um, the, the Lord will kick you out of the land. You're going to lose Jerusalem, and uh, and that all happens. It all goes terribly wrong. And in the north, um, end of the eighth century, and in in the Judah in the south, five eight seven destroyed, lose everything. Well, roughly 70 years later, depends how you 
which way you're calculating it, but the um, people start to dribble back to Jerusalem. There are three waves, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and we're around about the year 450 BC. It's a long way from the big hitters of Isaiah, etc., those major prophets. About 450 BC, and it's a bit different here because... Um, the issue in Malachi is not idolatry so much, that language of chasing after the other gods, putting your trust in the other nations, particularly Egypt. That's given way. And the criticism to the believers that comes through the prophet Malachi is, you're just half-hearted. You're just going through the motions. There's no zeal. There's no enthusiasm. It's all just a bit pathetic, your religion. And in many ways, it's actually that much more straightforward to apply these later prophets, people like Haggai and, and, and Malachi, because to a church in the 21st century, particularly been following Jesus a long time, you can get, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm here, I'm here. And I'm following Jesus, I know. But it's all just a little bit going through the motions without any great enthusiasm or zeal. I put down at the bottom of the page uh, five times. Yeah, there's sort of five speeches, really, uh, in the book. You get this same pattern. Um, God, uh, there's an assertion. The Lord says, uh, the people say, what are you talking about? Uh, and then God says, well, let me tell you. Uh, and you get them. So uh, we look at the uh, the first one tonight. Next time, then, um, uh, chapter one, verse six: You priests show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Uh, and then the Lord replies to them. Or chapter two, verse seventeen: You've wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied the Lord? You ask, and then you get the reply to it. Chapter three uh, and verse eight: you, You're robbing me, says the Lord, and you ask, how are we robbing you, Lord? Uh, and then you get the reply. You get the pattern. That's the pattern. Of Malachi. God says, here's something going wrong. There's a truculent response. What are you talking about, God? Um, and then the Lord replies to them. That's the structure. And we'll work through these, uh, one each, uh, over the next few weeks. Here are a people who are tired of the life of faith, um, disappointed with what God has given them, cynical about the benefits of following him, going through the motions, not obviously serving other gods, not obviously doing something that's wrong, I guess, but just half-hearted, going through the motions, which is dishonoring to the Lord, but also just completely unsatisfactory for them. And I take it there'd be some here tonight who are just thinking, uh-oh, uh... -oh, uh well, maybe that's me. I sort of, I'm here and most weeks and, well, plenty of weeks. And um, I'm sort of, yeah, I guess I am sort of going through the motions. And you know, there's nothing satisfying about that way of living the Christian life. You, you never find a really happy, half-hearted Christian. It's complete nonsense. And Malachi would try and wake us up a little bit. So all sorts of problems uh, in this church in around 450 BC, uh, back in Jerusalem. But they begin here, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The underlying issue is they doubt God's love for them. 
that feeds all the other problems. Because if you doubt God's love for you, then your spiritual enthusiasm will wane. Your desire to live for him will just dissipate. You'll become half-hearted. Here's the thing you need to know above anything else. So we're going to work through it like this. It's very simple. There's only five verses. How long could it take? They doubted God's love, but God had chosen to love them. And then we think lastly, briefly, what about us? What about us? First then, they doubted God's love. Chapter 1 and verse 1. A prophecy or oracle. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, God's messenger. I've loved you, verse 2, says the Lord. The verb is not just past tense, quite hard to translate it, I guess, effectively in, in, in English. I, I have loved you. I am loving you. I am ongoingly loving you. That sense to it. I love you. I have loved you. I still love you. That hasn't changed. And the people say, how have you loved us? And certainly from the rest of the book, it's clear that's not the, um, that's not the anguished inquiry of a psalmist. Why, Lord? What's happening, Lord, as you often get in the Psalms? How long, Lord? I'm confused, Lord. Habakkuk is a bit more, I'm confused. Why would you operate in this way, Lord? This is much more truculent, as you get from the repeated questioning of the Lord. It's not, Father, I, I don't understand what you're doing. It's, God, what is your problem? Is the mood of it here. It's the truculent teenager. All you do is nag. All you do is tell me to go to my, do my homework. You're just the worst parent on the planet. It's that sort of attitude being displayed here. They're asking, what have you done for us lately, God? Yeah, we've got all these promises of the Old Testament, but uh, all right, you did say back in the 8th century that if we disobeyed you as a people, we'd get evicted from the land. You did say that, and uh, I guess our forefathers did all that. But we're back now. We're back in Jerusalem, and it's rubbish. Like, we've, we've rebuilt the temple. You can read in Ezra 3, but everyone just bursts into tears because it's pathetic compared to what they had before. It's the scale of things has just shrunk down. It's tin pot. It's pathetic. We're meant to be your chosen people that you love and bless. Where's all that then? They're asking. Where's your love for us? Now, you ever find yourself thinking that sort of way? Personally, perhaps? God, you've saved me in Jesus. Good, Good. Yeah, I know, that's good. Um, but it was actually quite a long time since you've given me anything that I really desired in life. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm sure it's good that I'm saved. I'm sure that's good. But what about now? I mean, things aren't going how I want them to go now. Or perhaps in a slightly more worthy fashion, if it's not personally, you, you might think nationally, well, the UK is pretty hard to be a Christian, you know. I mean, a couple of hundred years ago, it was good. There were like revivals and, and loads of people becoming Christians all over the place. And um, like Christian politicians, they were shaping the nation. I mean, there's loads of great legacy of that, but it's pretty different these days, Lord. Where's your love for us now? Where's your love for your church now? I see Christians get given quite a hard time. Have you not noticed that, Lord? Uh, what about back then? It was 
better? Where's your love for us? Oh, look, I'm just being honest, Lord. I'm not going to throw in the faith. Just don't ask too much of me. I'm just hedging my bets here, Lord, because you ain't coming through. How can I trust you wholeheartedly when life looks a bit like this? That's the attitude. Problem with that is, some of us would have known this, you can quite easily get into a real downward spiral. Um, I don't see that God loves me, so I need to entertain myself. I need to pursue pleasure my own way. So I'm going to sin, because whatever it may be, uh, drink or porn or whatever it may be, I don't know, um, just materialism. Um, I'm just going to pursue those things in a slightly obsessive way. The problem is when you sin... When you reject the look, when you see it, it blinds you to his goodness. <laughs> you just don't see his goodness. So then you sort of descend even more and even more and even more. It's a really downward spiral you get into. And Malachi 1 is here to say, you know, stop that. <laughs> Snap out of that downward descent. The Lord loves you. Notice here it's plural, which I think makes a difference in this context. You, plural, ask, how have you loved us, Lord? Verse 2, I've loved you, plural, says the Lord. So this is not one individual's problem. It seems there's some sort of contagion of cynicism here that spreads throughout the people. Uh, and when you read through the whole of the, uh, of the prophecy and all these challenges uh, that the people make, how have you loved us? What, what are you saying there's something wrong with our worship? What is the point in serving you? Why would we give money to your work, for goodness sake? It, it's clear that in Malachi's day, it's become socially acceptable amongst God's people to whinge. It's okay, just a moan. God's let me down. Yes, I know. He's rubbish, isn't he? Um, that's sort of, they're just spurring one another on in this downward uh, descent because cynicism spreads. That's just worth observing for us. Moaning is contagious, a bit like yawns. One person does it, then someone else does it. You think, well, we're all yawning. How, what's, there's, oh, there's some science behind that. I don't understand it, but there's some science behind it. Well, moaning, I tell you what, it's really catchy. Particularly if you're British, we're really good at it. Um, particularly strong, culturally. Moaning. I think of one um, older minister, now retired. I don't think this is great, really. But, uh, but sometimes when people were moaning, he would, in a slightly passive-aggressive fashion, say, well, watch out for snakes. Watch out for snakes. And normally people would be a little confused. Well, you know, Numbers 20, Israel as a, as, a, as a nation, they moaned, and God sent them a plague of snakes, and they bit them and they all died. So watch out for snakes if you're moaning. <laughs> and people never knew quite what to do with that. So it's slightly passive-aggressive. Um, he kind of got away with it, maybe. I'm not sure he did, really. Um, but there's some truth to that at the same time. Perhaps... If you encounter a load of moaning, be a bit more gentle and constructive than that, I'd suggest. Um, I mean, do be gentle. People are having a hard time of some kind, or maybe not, they're just moaning. Whatever, whatever way it is, we need other believers to draw alongside us if we're Christians and say, that is hard. But God is good. Let me just remind you of some of the things He's done already for you in Jesus. At the moment, it seems that you need to cling to them more than ever. 
that you need to know about his goodness more than ever. Not that he's good to necessarily confront the moaning aggressively, but we need the encouragement. Because if moaning's left unchallenged, there's a problem. You get a people like Malachi's day. They doubted God's love. That was the issue. And so what we're told is that God had chosen to love them. God had chosen. So they, let's read it again. Uh, verse 2, I've loved you, says the Lord. You ask, how have you loved us? God's reply, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. And I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Well, that's, I mean, that's cute. That's sold everything, hasn't it? What would you expect God to say in the Old Testament? His people say, do you really love us? I mean, you probably expect him to say, yeah. Yeah, look, I rescued you from Egypt under the tyrant's hand uh, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. I rescued you and um, brought you into the promised land like we sung. Um, that was good, wasn't it? Or um, I offered you means of forgiveness, you know, when you did stuff wrong, there were these sacrifices, so there could be um, forgiveness. I gave you enormous wealth and prosperity. Uh, when you were going off the rails, I, like, I sent loads of warnings. I sent all these prophets. You remember Isaiah? You remember Jeremiah? You didn't like him very much, kept giving him a hard time. But anyway, do you remember all these prophets? I, of course, they may be obvious things to go for. God says... If you doubt your love, my, excuse me, my love for you, remember I chose to love you. I chose to love you as a people. Jacob and his descendants, Israel, Judah. I chose to love you, not Esau, who becomes the nation of Edom. And you can read about it in Genesis 25. God says, I love this son and all his descendants, and not that son. Don't be thrown too much by the language of love and hate. Often that's used, used as a comparison. You can get that in the New Testament. Jesus can say, uh, honor your parents and um, affirm the Ten Commandments in that. He can also say, if you love me, you'll hate your parents. <gasps> um, it's just relatively speaking. It's just talking about a sense of priority that love-hate language. But you're still left with God saying, I chose to love Jacob, and I did not choose to love Esau. Why? Because I chose it that way. Now, perhaps let me draw one little distinction here. We're not talking here about God's general love for the world. Because the Bible is clear, God loves the world and everyone in the world, in a general sense. Um, because every individual, and you can apply this to individuals as well as nations, every individual across the planet, even today, God loves them, even though uh, it, the many individuals have rejected him and turned against him. He still loves them because they're still made in his image. They're still, in that sense, his children. So even though they may be hostile, incredibly hostile, angry, and aggressive, he still loves them. 
in that sense. You know, you imagine a, a, a teenager girl, I don't know, goes off to university, age 20, and decides for a massive reinvention of herself, and um, so just doesn't want to be known by her parents at all, completely rejects everything her parents stand for and their values, and so dresses wildly differently, um, bleaches her hair, has a tattoo across three quarters of her face, like Phantom of the Opera. Um, probably not. Uh, but anyway, some sort of crazy tattoos. She just doesn't want to be recognized at all. And yet still in a crowd of people, her parents walk into a room at a university pub and they hear a laugh. And they say, that's our daughter. There's still something they recognize in the daughter, even though she's marred her likeness enormously. Well, that is the world today. Most people do reject God. They deny he's there. They can be incredibly hostile. They mar the image of God that is within them. But God still loves them, still loves them in a general sense. But here, it's God's saving love that's being spoken of. His love that takes you to be with him forever in heaven, in eternity, is what's being spoken of. The key point for a believer is that God has chosen to love them. Why? Because he's chosen to. But, but, but what is there within Jacob that means God loves Jacob and not Esau? Nothing. Nothing. Again, we sung, what was the lyric? Entirely right and, and biblical. You called my name before you formed the earth. God, if you're a Christian here tonight, God chose you before he made this planet. He knew. He chose in advance. Now, sometimes, of course, in the West, we get a bit het up about this and think, oh, we don't like that. If there's any choosing to be done, I shall choose God. I don't like the fact that God has chosen me or not chosen me. I don't like any of that. Yeah, yeah, but that's very much a Western individualism thing. And we deal with it in lots of other ways. It's not that everyone has complete free choice over what their lives become. No one chooses what what country they're born, what century they're born, what family they're born into. No one chooses how able they are, therefore the life opportunities that combine with the other three have upon them. You born in the UK in 2022, not know anyone here, um, but you born in the UK, whatever, in 1990, all sorts of opportunities denied to someone being born in Bangladesh in the 16th century. We, we just handle that in lots of areas of life. Of course, in this one, it, I think it is a bit more emotive. But God is the God who is perfect. And at some point you say... We trust you. But the point being made for believers is he chooses. In the book of Romans in the New Testament, you can look it up later, Romans chapter 9, Paul takes this passage and applies it again to individuals. God chooses. The significance here is God sets his love upon individuals and will never let them go. He will never let them go. He is not fickle. He does not change his mind. He says here to the people of Malachi's day, I chose to love you. I never 
change my mind. My, um, my grandfather on my father's side was, um, and forgive me, you, know, you might think this is terrible, what I'm going to tell you, but everyone involved is dead. Um, my grandfather on my father's side was a, a fairly despicable man. I, think, I don't think there's much debate about that. Um, I mean, the way he, he related to others, he was pretty unscrupulous in, in many business dealings. He had three children, my father was one of them, and he treated them all completely unequally, and they all lived in fear of him. And he uh, was physically abusive. Uh, it, just, it, it was a different generation, you can say all those things, but still, I think by any cultural standards, a uh, pretty unpleasant man. My father would comment on these things, and we, we never knew who was in and out of favor. So at points, I thought I was the favoured child, and then obviously not. And his brother was sent to a private school uh, and paid for and allowed to go to school until he was 18. My father sent to the local state school and pulled out of school age 15 to go and work on the farm. They were not, no, never treated equally, always very unfair, always raising up one and knocking down the others. It'd be like succession, but on like a budget scale, um, if you watch that sort of thing. But this sort of, this sort of pleasure taken in knocking them down, does my father love me? It was never clear. One thing I never quite understood was how my father, one of those three, emerged. My aunt and uncle, they're all deceased, did the same with their kids, treated them all incredibly differently. It was just a standard joke amongst the cousins. Who's in, who's not with your mum at the moment? Oh, well, I'm out. She sent me the will again. And this is when we're in their 40s and 50s. She sent me the will, making the point, I'm not in it, I'm out. But, I, you know, next year I'll be back in and one of the others will be out. I mean, the only person who wins here is the lawyers because every year it gets changed. And uh, you know, that, just this extraordinary treating children differently. And yet my father broke the cycle. I don't know what emotionally did that for him. But he treated my sister and I fairly, consistently, and I would never have doubted his love for me. Oh, I knew his discipline as well. When I lied, when I smashed up the car, when, you know, when things went wrong, I would know his discipline. But I never doubted his love. And those of us who are here as parents know that's pretty hard to demonstrate a consistency. What do you think of when you think of God? He is consistent in his love. He cannot stop loving you. He's chosen to love. His love is unchanging. We can act in deplorable fashion. He will not cut us off because Christ has paid for our sins. He's shown us mercy. It's the guarantee. I love you, says the Lord. Of course, there are times like the people in Malachi's day, we say, wow, that's all very good, but I can't see it. I can't see it in front of my eyes. Yeah, yeah, and God said that to them back then. Look, we don't see it, Lord. We don't see it. Um, what about Edom? Uh, we got smashed by the Babylonians in the year 587. And Edom, you don't love them, but they emerged. They were fine. Yeah, yeah, says the Lord. Just wait. Just wait. Edom crushed also. They will never get to rebuild. I love you. Sometimes you have to wait to see it. But verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes. You will say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. God says, you don't doubt my love. I've set it upon you. It can never change. They doubted God's love. God had chosen to love. What about us? 
let's draw some thoughts together for you and for me. What do we do about this? How do we assess if God loves us? God loves the church. God loves me. Do we do it by how we're feeling today? That's pretty ropey. Whether our desires are met? Well, there'll be seasons when they are and seasons when they're not. Whether we're currently enduring pain and hardship? Well, it'll come in some form or another. Do we judge God's love for us by comparison? Here's me, look at them, they seem to have more. That'll always be pretty deadly. Malachi would say, you must assess God's love for you by what he's done in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you know he has loved you. If you're sat here tonight and think, well, I don't think I am a Christian and I'm not sure what to make of this, trust Jesus Christ. Once you belong to him, he will never let you go. He will never stop loving you. We must assess God's love for us by what he's done. Or as the New Testament in many, many places we put it, 1 John 4, this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love begins with him. His love for you is constant. It's a love despite your behavior, not because of it. You have to know that. I read something last, well, a little while ago. Um, it was an article about Christian students at Ivy League universities in the States. What's that, the top 12 dozen or so? What do you call the Ivy League? 12? Something like that. 20? I don't know. Um, something like that. The top universities in the States. Anyway, uh, some research done amongst Christian students, and they were just observing what are the things which are hardest, or um, the pressures, that's right, the pressures, the perennial pressures upon them. Three things across these different 12, 20, I can't remember, Ivy League universities. Number one, from parents, you must get an A. Oh, come on. Like, these are elite universities, and they're on a normal distribution bell curve. By definition, not everyone can get an A. But that was one pressure they felt. Uh, from culture, secondly, you've got to have a great time. If you're not having a great time, what is wrong with you? Thirdly, you've got to be hot. That was the message from their peers. If you ain't hot, you is nothing. The result was that 80% suffered an eating disorder and 70% some kind of clinical depression over their undergraduate degrees. By contrast, if you, rather than looking to even your parents, your culture, your peers, for acceptance, you know, you know that you have the unconditional love of the creator of the world, and he has chosen to set his love upon you and will never change his mind, that's encouraging, isn't it? Your friends can go hang to a certain extent, as can the culture. Not your parents, I would never say that. But they can to a certain extent. The certainty of God's unconditional love grows in us confidence. Contentment. And lastly, cheerful faith. That gets worked out in the rest of the book of Malachi. There's a, if you know that God loves you, you can serve him with a cheerful obedience. Because you know you're secure and you're thankful that he set his love upon you. I read um, amidst the stuff in Ukraine, uh, Syria has got pretty lost, but I read uh, the other day about the, I don't know how to pronounce it, Karkoubi family. They're a Syrian family um, that uh, for political reasons uh, had to flee, 
and were accepted as a tiny numbers these days as a refugee by the UK government. So mum, dad, and three kids have uh, set up home in Aberystwyth. And uh, they're skint, they've got no money, and as yet they haven't been able to get jobs, um, but they're cheerfully volunteering at the school and getting involved in what they can. Uh, there's an article about them. The reason that this particular family had hit the news was because, to the surprise of the residents of Aberystwyth, uh, one day um, they'd gone out, well, it was one of these hot days, and just given out flowers on the beach. And they're sort of emerging English. They're just giving out flowers to people on the beach. And people are saying, what, what, what are you doing? And they just said, we, we don't know what to do, but we just want you to know we're so thankful that you let us come. <laughs> we're just so thankful. Um, it's all quite hard at the moment, and we're trying to find our feet. But we feared for our lives, and now we've got these funny pieces of paper that we can just about read that say we can stay and that no one can make us leave. We're safe. And we're so thankful. And I don't know what you do with a cut flower on a very hot day when it's 35 degrees. No, probably not in Aberystwyth. 25 degrees um, in a heat wave in Wales. Um, but it's just, they get it. They get it. They said, um, we give thanks every day that you rescued us. Isn't that lovely? So back then they doubted God's love. God says, no, I've chosen to set my love upon you. I can never change my mind. For you and me, if we know that certainty of God's unchanging love, that security, that contentment, if we know that certainty can produce a cheerful obedience within us, if you forget God's love, you stagnate spiritually. It's very hard to serve him with any enthusiasm. But his love is not fickle. His love does not change. He doesn't play games. He set his love upon believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to know that he loves you. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, there is a simple truth that many of us would have heard countless times in our lives, and yet we doubt it. And yet we doubt it in our hearts. That's why we're half-hearted sometimes. Father, break that little spiral that often goes on of descending into cynicism, frustration, resentment about the way things have turned out. Would we instead look upon you and your promises, look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, be delighted that we can never lose your love for us and serve you in joyful obedience, we pray. Help us deep down to know you love us, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name and through his work. Amen.